uh, uh, you heard me tell a story about the naval lint collector, didn't you? Of course. We're all in one way or another in this same boat. That's why that story is so uh, so uh, elegant uh, in its uh, in its cutting down to the marrow of life. It's a true thing. In fact, uh, I, uh, I I I've been getting. Uh, letters recently, you know, you, you, you get these letters. One letter said, uh, uh, Shepard, uh, uh, what was your first experience uh, in uh, public uh, broadcasting, television, radio, anything like that? Well, I'd have to tell you. Are you, you're, are you really interested in this? Any of you interested? I've always wondered when I look out, let's say I'm looking on television and I see, I see a ball game. And as Tom Seaver will say, is pitching, right? What was the first moment when Tom Seaver first met a baseball? That was a pretty historical moment. Well, these, these are historic moments, and so since you've asked this question, I don't ordinarily talk about a thing like this. But uh, I will tell you, my first, my first uh, actual experience with, uh, with uh, one might say, uh, uh, public broadcasting. Now, you didn't ask me my first experience in showbiz. That's different. Oh, yes. Uh, showbiz, uh, my, I'll tell you, my first experience in showbiz came in second grade. I, I was in second grade. And uh, we had the second grade teacher, and uh, Miss Shields, and Miss Shields, as part of a PTA, uh, they had a PTA uh, weekend where all the parents came to school and all that stuff, and they had the displays of various artworks that the kids had made and all that. Her contribution to this was an oral hygiene pageant, which was performed on Saturday night on that weekend, and uh, I took part in that. I played a decayed molar. Yes. And, uh, of course, of typecasting all the way down the line because... Uh, other kids, the more clean limb types. I remember, I remember Eileen Akers, for example, uh, played a toothbrush. She played a toothbrush, and then, and, and uh, Helen Weathers played a tube of toothpaste. And uh, there were other various characters. One guy played a, a malocluded bite, uh, which uh, that was Jack uh, Morton played that. I remember the, all our rehearsals, and I can recall that feeling walking out on the stage. I had a tooth suit on. Uh, a tooth suit. Uh, we we spent at least two weeks in, in second grade making these, you know, the costumes. It was a big uh, process of uh, all the kids getting to make them. And, and the way we made the teeth was very interesting, I thought. Uh, already I was beginning to be aware of the tinsel, the glamour, and the uh, false world of showbiz. Uh, we <laughs> we made these uh, these teeth out of wire. Uh, we had pieces of wire which were made into circles, and they were then covered like a, like almost like a Japanese lantern, with paper which was then painted white, and I had this big brown, brown black spot painted on the top, and that was my decayed place, and I had these two little holes where I could see out, and uh, it had it had the beautiful roots. This tooth had roots down there that concealed my feet. And I remember walking out on the stage, and I heard this this audience, you know, such a beautifully done decayed molar, uh, and and I was playing it so well. I, I, I was an instinctive performer at that point because you see, after all, a decayed molar, one has to understand the role one's playing. Uh, 
One doesn't just walk out, you know, with the same, uh, the same elan, the same spirit. If you were playing, say, a healthy incisor, that's that's a that's a tool that's stepping forward confidently into the future. Uh, you must admit that a decayed molar is a is a tooth that has some doubts about its future, right? Uh, more than that, it's a, it's a tooth that has been assailed and attacked by unkind germs. So I came out with this slight limp. Uh, I, I thought about the part for a couple of days, and I, I worked it out. I came out with a slight limp and, uh, and, a, and a faint but barely audible moan uh, as I moved around on the stage. And, of course, it was a very effective performance, and that was my first experience with showbiz. We're not here to talk about that, though. We're dealing with something else here. I, I was bitten by the showbiz bug later on uh, in the in the same year, uh, due to my fantastic performance as a decayed molar. I played George Washington in a George Washington birthday drama, which uh, was performed in an auditorium session at the Warren G. Harding School. And uh, this entire drama was played after the whole performance took place in a very important but highly unknown part of Mr. Washington's life. This is after he had retired from public life. Uh, this uh, uh, drama was written by our third grade teacher, Miss Robinette, and uh, I was cast in the role of George unexpectedly, but of course at that time, still with the child's lack of knowledge of his true talent, I did not realize why they asked me to do it. Later, I began to realize that the uh, I don't think there's anyone in the whole school could have pulled off a Washington like I pulled off, but it was a good, solid performance. Nothing spectacular, but solid, meaningful, with great insight into the man's character, Washington. And uh, I remember we played it on the on the porch of Mr. Washington's ancestral home. Do any of you know the name of his home? Where did Mount, uh, was it Mount Vernon or was it Monticello? Which one was it? That's right. That's very good, class. It was Mount Vernon. And um, uh, that's right. Most of you are still confused about that. It was Mount Vernon. And it was not Mount Vernon, New York, you know. Many people drive through Mount Vernon are under the mistaken impression this is the home of George Washington they're going past. Actually, it's the Carvels that they're going past. They have a very elegant uh, early Georgian Carvel there in Mount Vernon, New York, which is often mistaken for... George Washington's ancestral home. Perhaps this is just uh, a coincidence. I think perhaps, on the other hand, it might be calculated on the part of the Carvel people. But uh, nevertheless, the Mount Vernon that we're speaking of was Mr. Washington's ancestral home, right? Well, this drama took place on the front porch of Mount Vernon, and we had the, uh, the auditorium. Actually, it was the gym. Our auditorium was actually the gymnasium. We had the baskets, were all, you know, the kind that folded up, up and say, oh, there were scenes of, of defeat in that gym. Uh, you could smell it in the gym. Uh, the Warren G. Harding School went through seven seasons without even coming close to winning one game, one, one very arid stretch. But nevertheless, the, the uh, baskets were hung up, up up in the ceiling like that, and the lights went down, and the curtain went up at a little stage that were sunk into one end of the gym there. And uh, we had the back backdrop of the stage directed like Mount Vernon. They had made, uh, actually what they did was make paper columns. You know, Mount Vernon has these columns, you know, the columns and all that and all that. And that, uh, so there was no confusion. Somebody had made the black letters over the door, Mount Vernon. 
Uh, you know, you, know, you don't want to confuse people. So when the curtain went up, there I was sitting in a rocking chair, looking right out at the audience, wearing a wig made out of tufts of white cotton that uh, Miss Robinette made by, by gluing them onto a stocking cap made from a lady's stocking. You know, the kind you pull her in, she had, they glued all this over, and it came down over my ears. It was really very, very effective. It had a little pigtail in the back. It was a white thing. And it had a little blue vest, and uh, I was wearing uh, I was wearing uh, silver buttons that had been glued, made out of tin foil. This is, this is the way the, the showbiz is. Nothing is real in showbiz. So we took little round pieces of cardboard and glued tin foil from Hershey bars on them, and uh, these were glued to my little vest, which made it look like I was wearing silver buttons. We then took a, a pair of uh, patent leather shoes, uh, put Vaseline on them to make them shine. And then cardboard buckles were cut out that were covered with uh, tin foil. And there I sat out there with the white stockings on, wearing a pair of, of uh, corduroy knickers that had been dyed black. A very elegant costume. You can see that. Think of it to yourself. Had a white shirt on. And I was sitting on the porch. The elderly, uh, the, the ancient figure of the father of our country, rocking and being philosophical to his wife. And... Uh, I'll ask the class now at this point, what was George Washington's wife's name? That's correct. That's correct. It was Martha. Do any of you know Thomas Jefferson's wife's name? Now, that's a harder one. Well, we'll let the class uh, think about that uh, while, while you're thinking about that. Uh, you, uh, Herb, you can look it up for us, and you can tell us tomorrow what Thomas Jefferson's wife's name was. And, uh, and you can tell us a little bit about her. You can find it in the World Book, by the way. So, uh, nevertheless, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's under Jefferson, under J, not, uh, not uh, Thomas Jefferson's wife. It's listed under J. Now, uh, in, in, the, in the case of this performance, when the curtain went up, and I heard this gasp of uh, the audience as I sat there and rocked, and next to me was Esther Jane Albury, who was dressed as... Uh, as Mrs. Washington. Now, remember, this was in the twilight of the great man's career, and uh, he, was, uh, he was talking back over the things. He was, he was talking to her. I remember the opening line was, Martha, are you awake? At which point, see, that was a kind of unusual opening line for a, for a drama to be performed by third graders. It had a touch of irony, uh, and it did not go over quite well, by the way. That one line confused the audience because one never thinks of the wife of George Washington sleeping while he's talking. Anyway, I said, Martha, are you awake? And she was supposed to say, yes, George. And at that point, I said the following speech, which I still remember. You're interested in the early days of the theater. At that point, I said, Martha, I have been sitting here going back over my remembrances as the father of our country and the things which I see in the future for our great land and the things which I look back with with pleasure as we have created this great land out of the wilderness and at which point she was supposed to say uh, that's very very nice George I am so proud that they call you the father of our country would you please tell me what your remembrances are? Well, we started the play. 
And the curtain went up, and I said the op- opening line, Are you awake, Martha? See? At that point, she started to talk, but I could not hear her. We had not ever had a dress rehearsal. All of our rehearsals had been undress rehearsals. The first time I wore the wig, nobody stopped to think that with the wig down over my ears, I could not hear Martha speaking to me. Well, they, you would think ordinarily this would be a fiasco. It was not a fiasco. I plowed right ahead, again, uh, showing the basic innate talent of a talented performer in the theater. I plowed right on ahead, and I delivered the entire play. Now, the play took roughly, uh, if it were performed properly, about 12 minutes. I had it figured out. Well, since we did not at this point then have any use for Martha's lines, the play took about seven and a half minutes. I went right through it. And with a thunderous applause, the curtain went down, and uh, Esther Jane started to cry. But uh, who the hell cares about one's fellow performance on a night of triumph, right? I mean, you don't think Barbara Streisand's going to worry about her leading man if he doesn't get good reviews, do you? Ho, ho, ho. This is WOR New York by George. Uh, we are an RKO General Station, and it's showbiz all the way. Hit the beer button, please. If you want to find something out, you've got to ask tough questions. And we want to find something out. Do you know you're probably drinking the wrong beer? Is a beer so good some people won't drink any other kind? Do you know this great beer's name is Valentine? Does hmm. that surprise you? Well, Why not try a Valentine today? We can ask tough questions about beer because we've got the answer. The only answer, Valentine. That's a hard-hitting commercial. Imagine a guy spending his whole life, you know, he's 74 years old, and just before he cuts off, he discovers all his life he's been drinking the wrong beer. Oh, God, what a wasted life. Uh, brewed by the P. Valentine Brewing Company, Cranston, Rhode Island. Now, all right, now let's get down to the basic point here of uh, contention. My first moment when I discovered the thrill, the excitement, the unbelievable uh, joy of uh, broadcasting over the electronic media. Now, uh, you hear stage people constantly talk about, you know, getting the audience uh, reaction to stage performances, and I have done a lot of stage work here in New York and around, as you know. And that is a certain certain thrill. There is no question about it. In fact, uh, you know, playing on the stage at Carnegie Hall is nothing quite like it, friends, really. I mean it. However, may I say this? The curious, almost mystic feeling that one gets <laughs> performing in the electronic media is unique in itself. You ever hear anybody talk about this? You always hear, uh, uh, you know, an elegant stage actor says, the audience is a thing, and I believe that, you know, that's true for them. And it's true when I play audiences. That's a whole different thing. But the curious, mystical, strange, magnetic experience of communicating via magical means. It's really magic, really, in a way. I'm talking here into a little piece of metal here. And you're sitting out somewhere. You can be up in Nova Scotia hearing me. Now, that's, that's in its own way it's magic. Very, very magical. Do you agree, Herb? That's a magical experience. Now, when you're standing on a stage and you're saying something, and you see those people down there, and they're listening to you, that's not magical. It's a pure, you know, they're just watching you pretend to be something. Now, you can create a magical atmosphere in the theater, but the medium itself is not magical. 
very down to earth. I mean, let's face it, uh, standing up on a stage uh, wearing a tooth costume and everybody sitting there watching you pretend you're a tooth, uh, this is a, you know, it's a pure physical act. But, uh, but the but the magic of uh, somebody squatting in the middle of a of a of a of a hovel somewhere in Staten Island uh, with a with a three dollar radio hearing you talk this is another piece of metal he's just got a chunk of metal and plastic that's all that is a few little pieces of copper wire strung together in the right way and pieces of uh, strange rare earths. Uh, are in that transistor radio. You agree with that, Herb? A lot of people don't even know what's in a transistor. All kinds of uh, rare elements go together. Yes, they are minute po uh, portions of those rare elements, but they're in there. Uh, it's drawn from the earth. That radio of yours is made out of stuff right out of the earth. Uh, and, it, and it's all put together in this tiny form, and magically it can hear voices in the air. Can pick them out, and and uh, and you can hear these voices. And at the same time, I'm doing the the reverse. I have this piece of metal here, and I'm performing into this piece of metal. And it takes a special technique to pour, perform into it. Don't you believe it, my friend? It really is true. Don't don't let anyone kid you. It takes a special kind of tank, uh, let's say uh, technique to perform. Uh, in this curious magical medium, many have tried, few have made it. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it, it, it there it is—a magical f process. And then even more interesting, uh, the, the, uh, they'll take this off and off on tape, and they will play this years later. I will hear parts of the of some performance I've done uh, years ago suddenly appear on a radio station somewhere. This is not true in the in the Broadway theater. It just simply that doesn't happen. You know, it's it's a, a curious uh, magic to this thing, and uh, it uh, it's definite. Now, how did this first happen with me? Well, I'll tell you. It uh, a, co a combination of things occurred. Strange combination of things. Two things happened, which. Uh, which uh, sort of combined to make this thing uh, magnetic to me. One thing that happened was purely accidental. Completely, it was an accidental, and I might say that it also a very, more than accidental, I would say uh, highly uh, pivotal in my life. I think most people's... Uh, a profession and whatever it is that they, uh, unless they're born into a family of 17 generations of horse doctors or something like that, <laughs> you know, the fact that you may become the 18th generation of horse doctors is not necessarily accidental. But uh, most people do not come from a long line of whatever it is they do. Yeah, you know, not really. It's fact. I mean, uh, can you imagine this little guy ducking in and out of a phone booth? On 48th Street, he comes from a long line of seven generations of phone booth Indians who <laughs> spend all their life <laughs> scrabbling in and out of phone booths, making cockamamie calls. Well, uh, this uh, this is uh, this is part of our lives. We got the you know the accidental part, and here's what the accidental part was. All right, I had a I had a paper route. That was the first thing when it took. See, well, a lot of kids have paper routes. 
school, right? And I had a paper route. I had this, this bike. And every morning, I would get up like, uh, you know, at about 4 o'clock in the morning. I delivered both the morning paper and the evening paper, which was one hell of a job <laughs> to develop, you know, to, to, to deliver both of them. So I'd get up about 4 o'clock in the morning, and I'd, I'd go down to, uh, to the place where they had the papers down at George's uh, candy store, and they had all these papers. Probably. He had the concession there, and he all the papers. And so me and about nine other paper boys would squat around on the floor in the dawn and uh, roll up our papers and stick them in these big sacks. I carried two big cloth sacks, and on one side it said uh, Chicago Tribune. That was the paper I delivered, you know, Chicago Tribune. And uh, kind of a heavy paper, big paper. It was a big one, like the Times. And uh, I'd pack these babies away, and I'd go struggling out into the wind with two big sacks of Chicago Tribunes on my back. And uh, as I would slowly uh, get rid of them around the around the uh, uh, the route that I had, uh, I, I would move faster and faster. And then by the time I would be finished, which was usually about uh, 7.30, I was ready to go to school. See, school started at 8 o'clock or 8.15, something like that. And uh, I'd already put in a good day by the time I, you know, got into Miss Robinette's class. But nevertheless, uh, it was that particular job that did it. This first moment... There was a whole lot of people I delivered these ads, these, these papers to, see. and every every day I would deliver them in the morning. And I'd never see these people hardly ever in the morning. They were always asleep, and I'd come riding past, and wham! I'd flip that paper up on a porch. Now I had all kinds of techniques on how to throw papers. After you're doing it for a while, that becomes an art form in itself. You know, you ever stop to think that they, almost everything you do in life, you get to be a specialist if you do it enough. Uh, have you ever watched a really good elevator man? Stop an elevator that's going about 100 miles an hour right exactly on the floor. Ah, man, that <laughs> yeah, try that sometime. Uh, you think that's easy. Have you ever seen a guy back a, a, a semi-tractor up to a loading dock between two other trucks? That's something to watch. You know, a gigantic 5,000-foot trailer. You know, he backs this baby up. Man, I mean, you don't think there's talent. You ought to try it. Half the people can't even back up their Volkswagen. Much of, you know, it's sad. But uh, nevertheless, uh, throwing papers up on the porch as you're riding full tilt on an Elgin bicycle pursued by seven Airedales uh, in the middle of a driving crosswind takes a talent of a high order. And it take, took me about three months to learn how to really do this. You see, because there's various types of throws. Some places have a hedge in front, at which point it's the overhand flip. Like so, you know, right over, and you'd hear the once in a while you'd hear the the uh, heart uh, heart filling, soul satisfying crash as uh, you know as your paper went through a front door or something like that. But uh, uh, generally, what we aim for were the eaves. We love to throw them into the uh, into the uh, drain pipe up at the top there. You see, that was always fun. Uh, that was always good, especially if you could put it in on one shot, not on the rebound, just shoot. Bumped right into the drain pipe. That was really... Occasionally, uh, you know, we'd, throw, we'd try all kinds of special things. Like, uh, I used to love to throw... Whenever there was a bucket or something on the front porch, you used to try to score points. You know, you'd bounce them off the backboard, you know, into the bucket there. Well, all right. Well, on Saturday now, this is not the point of the story. Uh, and then, uh, you know, this uh, how to deliver papers. On Saturday, I would go around and collect, right? Okay. Well, there was one strange, mysterious house 
on my on my route. And uh, this house, uh, this is an ordinary frame house. But uh, this house always had funny noises coming out of it. I'd hear these noises all the time. Uh, and I'd come up to the to the front porch there to collect, and I'd ring the bell, and uh, always this man would come out. See, and this man, he's always looking harassed, see. And uh, he, he, uh, he said, well, well, how much is it? He'd say, he's always in a hurry. And I could hear these noises coming from behind. Right, uh, uproar, always in the house. All kinds of whistles and stuff. And he'd say, uh, how much is it? And I'd say, uh, 27 cents. He'd say, all right, okay, I'll be right with you. He says, here, uh, here's, uh, well, here, here's 30 cents. Don't, don't worry about the pennies. And he'd rush into the house and go. Well, one day, <laughs> one day, I remember I'm about 10. One day... I come up to this guy's house, and I ring the door, like I can hear the uproar coming out. And uh, he opens the door, and uh, he says, how much is it? He always ever asks us, he says, 27 cents. And he says, well, uh, I've only got a dollar. Uh, I I don't have enough change. Uh, well, all right, come on in, for crying out loud. And I come in the house, first time I'm in the house, see? And I'm looking around, and, and uh, I'm standing there waiting, and he's going through the cookie jars or something for 27 cents. And I look into the room where all this noise is coming out. I can't believe what I'm seeing. There's a, this fantastic big panel went all the way to the ceiling with, with the glowing meters. And everything is going. And I was out of this, there was a loudspeaker, and there was all kinds of stuff. And it's going, ah, fantastic uproar. And there's a microphone. And I'm looking in there with my eyeballs bulging, and obviously this guy saw that I was fascinated. He came out out of the kitchen with the money, and he says, uh, oh, he said, uh, uh, here, here's your 27 cents. And I said, what, what is that? He said, well, it's an amateur radio. I, I, uh, it's an amateur radio station. And uh, I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, you want to take a look at it? Well, you know, all hands are always that way. They always want to show you their thing. See, so I didn't know it at the time, but I was entering an entire new world. I walked into this guy's room and this, you know, radio equipment all over, fantastic stuff. He's got a microphone. And uh, he comes back, he turns a, turns a switch and he says, uh, uh, something like a W3HRC, 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 and this is W9JCA, are you still there? Boom. And back comes his voice. W9JCA, this W3HRC, uh, yeah, just hanging on here. I thought I didn't know what happened here, Gil. I uh, was... Uh, and with that, Gil goes back on. He says, oh, well, I said, the kid came here with the papers. I had a QRT, QRX for a couple of minutes here while I got the, got the uh, paper money. And I'm standing with my eyeballs. This guy, he's talking to somewhere. I figured, you know, he's in the next room or something. Well, I discovered he was not. He was in some place like Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And, and Gil, who was the guy that was uh, the guy who I was delivering the papers to, I didn't know him as Gil. You know, he was Mr. Mr. Columbus, you know, very official type. He says, uh, "Say hello to uh, say hello to uh, Howie. Uh, that's Howie W three H R C. Say hello to Howie there." And uh, mm. you know, I'm looking at this. He gives me this microphone, which, which I now recognize as a, as a D one o four. In case you're interested, <laughs> he asks me the mic. Say, oh, you know, he says, uh, he says, "Well, say something to him." So, uh, Howie, uh, gee, uh, hi, Howie. Uh, boy, uh, how are you, Howie? At which point Gil takes the mic and says, Well, that, uh, that was, uh, what'd you say your name was, kid? Uh, oh, that was Gene. Yeah, that's Gene. Uh, well, okay, Howie. 
turn it back to you now. I hope the QRM isn't too tough on us now. Uh, I'll just turn it back here in a minute. Uh, you can say hello to the visitor in the shack. And uh, uh, by the way, you were peeking over about five over nine on that last transmission. You, we must be getting a pretty good path here. You're coming through great. So, okay, I'll turn it back. This W9JZA, turn it over to W3HRC. And boom. And this voice comes back on. Hello, Jane. How are you? Well, you sure sounded good on that. Uh, uh, this is your first experience with amateur. I was done. My God. <laughs> I mean, you know what I'm talking about, you, since you're a ham, Tennessee. Well, from that minute on, I mean, it was there was no turning back. I mean, I was, I, but I never thought in terms. I always thought in terms of building equipment, you know, being in the air. The next turning point came. And there I was. I was bitten by the microphone. The next turning point came. Now I am a junior in high school. Okay, you got that? And I'm playing on the high school football team. This was a big high school, 3,000 students. And uh, this was about the second or third game into the season. And I got a very badly pulled muscle in my left leg. I'm telling you, I had a... Uh, have you ever really pulled a muscle, any of you out there? Well, if you've played football or baseball, you probably have at one time or another, if you've played it seriously. Well, I want to tell you, I pulled a muscle. Sometimes it still hurts. I, I, how did it happen? Well, just like it always happens. In the middle of a play, I, I turned and, and uh, made a bad turn, bad cut or something, and I felt something go. And all of a sudden, I was rolling around on the ground with my muscle and my calf bunched up, and I was really in trouble. You know, they put uh, ice packs and all that stuff on it. And, and so I was out of action for about, uh, oh, I'd say about uh, three or four weeks after that little goody, which happened in the middle of a rainstorm. Uh, that, that's why football players hate to play football in the rain, because this is where you, get, you really get hurt in rain. Uh, because, you, you, first of all, your cleats always slide... And it's obvious, you know, you have problems. Also, you have trouble with visibility, too. In a rainstorm, the rain is coming down. You don't quite have that sharpness. Uh, your peripheral vision is cut down. And then that's a way to get a blindside shot that doesn't stop. So anyway, there I am. See, I got this fantastic leg, and I'm hobbling around. I got ace bandages all over me, you know, and they're giving me the heat treatments and stuff. So I came down, it was a big night uh, for a game. We're sitting down there. We're playing Roosevelt High School. Again, this was a historic moment in my life. I'm not even suiting up tonight see, because of this thing. See, I love this. So I was going to go down and sit on a bench, see. And uh, so we're sitting in the dressing room, and, and uh, everybody's suiting up, and, and I've got the ace bandages all over my leg. When this guy comes in, he's talking to the coach. I just see the guys, some some time guy, and the coach comes over to me and says, Hey, Shepard. So listen, he said, Would you care to go up in the booth and uh, do a little spotting for the guys on the radio? I said, what? He said, yeah. I said, yeah, because all our games were broadcast on a local radio station. See? And he says, so would you like to go? You know, I've never even gone up there. I knew what they did or anything. All I know is that the, the, everybody uh, uh, heard the games on the broadcast. You know, uh, every week they would hear them on the, on the radio. So he says, would you like to go up and do a little spotting? So I said, yeah, yeah, you know, sure. He said, well, okay, uh, go with him. This, uh, this is Frank. Frank, uh, this is... Uh, Shepard, uh, he's uh, he, <laughs> you know he's got a bad leg, at the, he plays on a club, 
So he said, yeah, glad to meet you. He said, yeah, I seen you play. So at that point, I go hobbling up with this guy. See, well, we go all the way up through the, through the back of the stands and up through, the, through a staircase and a ladder and everything. Else. And the next thing you know, we're in this little hut on top of the stands, way up. It's a long, narrow hut. And there's a couple of guys sitting there with typewriters, you know, chewing on, chewing on toothpicks and looking down. And uh, here is this setup they had, which I'd never seen before. These guys have got have got clipboards, you know, with all the all the numbers of the players and all that, and, and uh, they have uh, PR public relations sheets, you know, what the what the, what happened last week and what this guy did last year and all that stuff. And there's about three guys sitting in there, and one guy is is the broadcaster. See, and they have two microphones there, and uh, he's sitting there, and they had these. I always remember these microphones, and I don't even know what kind they were, but they had they were bullet shaped. I remember that was impressed me. See, so. Uh, this guy's sitting there doing the show. Doing the, I remember his name even, John something. So he was the guy that was doing the broadcast. And uh, they were not even on the air yet. So he says, hi, my name is uh, John Watanabe. He says, I do, the, I do the play-by-play here. I'd heard him. So he's a famous guy, you know. Wow, you know. I said, hello. He said, oh, yeah, Shepard, I've seen you play. Yeah. He said, boy, well, how's your leg? So I said, oh, well, you know, it's okay. And then he said, uh, well, sit down over there. He said, uh, if you want to do it, he said, hey, he said, uh, uh, would you like to, uh, he said, would you like to do a little color for us? I said, what, what? I mean, what the hell color is? He said, well, would you like to do a little color? I know, I know how he won't mind. Uh, would you like to do a little color? I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, uh, before the game, we're going to talk about the game, and, uh, and uh, we go on about 10 minutes before the uh, actual kickoff, and uh, we're going to we're going on. He said in about a minute and a half, as a matter of fact, I could see all the guys down there lining up and say, <laughs> and there's an engineer sitting. It's the first one I ever saw. The engineer's sitting there. He's got earphones on, you know, and he's got this remote board, and he's he's talking back to the studio. He says, one, two, three, four. Hello, one, two, three, four. Yeah, okay. Yeah, all right, okay. And the engineer turns around. He gives him one minute, you know, and uh, we're sitting there. I'm, I'm all excited. I've never seen anything like this before. And uh, so, sure enough, uh, the engineer suddenly, uh, he gives, you know, half a minute. He gives with a signal like that. I'm looking, gee, you know, wow. And uh, at that point, uh, he gives him 10 seconds. He gives him, sits in, wasn't, you know, when he's talking on the phone, then he says, five seconds. <laughs> and then he gives him the finger. See, boom, like that. And the guy says, uh, hello, ladies and gentlemen, hello, sport fans everywhere. Uh, tonight's big game between Hammond and Roosevelt High School. Going to come to you in about 10 minutes. We've got a fantastic crowd out here tonight, and he's talking away there, seeing at the, gee, oh, look at the guy. He's fantastic, see? Well, I'm sitting over here to his right, and there was another microphone there, and, and sitting in front of the microphone was this other guy, the guy that had come down into the into the dressing room who brought me up. See, I didn't even know who he was. He says, and tonight uh, we have uh, have Howie Johnson here to give the call for you. Uh, how does the game look to you, Howie? And Howie says, well, it looks like it's going to be a good ball game. So I'll tell you this, uh, this rain is going to change things a little bit uh, tonight. Uh, we don't expect a lot of passing tonight. Uh, we're going to see some fumbles. I expect to see uh, uh, they're going to have a lot of trouble hey, keeping a handle on the ball. And uh, what do you think about that, Shepard? Uh, we have up here in the booth here, we have uh, Shepard, uh, who, uh, as you know, uh, plays on the uh, plays on the offensive team for Hammond High. We'd uh, like to talk to Shepard here for a minute. Uh, he's up here. He's got an injured leg. And uh, what do you think of tonight's game? What the hell? <laughs> here I am. Well, well, I said, uh, well, uh, tonight's game. Uh, I-, I wanted to ask him all about this. You know what, kind of, <laughs> what they're doing there. See, 
I said, well, uh, tonight's game. Uh, well, I'll tell you, uh, well, I, I believe that, uh, that uh, that's a pretty good uh, ball club. I, uh, I only played uh, once against Roosevelt, uh, a pretty good club. Uh, I'll say this, uh, I, I, they probably got one of the best uh, defensive lines in the league. Uh, uh, Turk Mazursky, I'll tell you, he's uh, this uh, this guy. Uh, you got to watch Mazursky. If Mazursky is on down there on the defensive left tackle, I mean he's uh, he's what it's about in that line down there. And if Mazursky's on, you're going to see a lot of guys having trouble tonight in our backfield. And uh, I uh, I believe it's going to be a good game. He said, "Well, thank you very much, Shepard. Uh, stick around now. We'd like to have you give a few comments as the ball game develops." Since uh, you're part of the offensive uh, club down there, uh, now let's go back to John, and uh, we're about ready for the play-by-play to begin. I see they're lined up down there for the kickoff. John, take it over. And John says, well, okay, ladies and gentlemen, now they're lining up. Uh, Hammond High is uh, elected to receive. They took the, they won the toss, and uh, there's a slight rain coming down now, but it looks like it might pick up a little bit later on, which is going to change the course of the ball game. They're lining up now. And the, the kicker, let's see who it is. It's Gwaliak for, for Roosevelt High. He's a, uh, he's a pretty fair kicker. Oh, he, keep, he keeps them high. And uh, they're lining up, and they're sweeping up now for the kick. And there's the kickoff. And it's taken by Papis. Uh, five yards behind the line, uh, five yards behind the goal line. He's up to the 5, 10, 15, and he's down at the 18-yard line. That was very interesting. Uh, Shepard, uh, does does Papis usually line up like that on the, you know? What, you know I said, well, yeah, you know that's our number four uh, kickoff uh, kickoff uh, formation. Papis lines up like that uh, sometimes off to the right and deep. And uh, you notice we had uh, Fred Lincoln was up uh, up around the five yard line. We only use one safety, but he's a canted safety. He plays off because we know this guy slants his kicks usually off to the left. And he said, oh, very interesting. That was a, all right, then now let's get back to the play-by-play. Now they're lining up the 18-yard line. The link is calling the plays now, and, and uh, it's a handoff to, uh, let's see, that was, uh, what was that? That was Clevenger, yes, Clevenger. Takes the ball up to the 21-yard line, a direct shot through left tackle, a straight-ahead play. Well, that night, <laughs> I mean, it was fantastic. I sat there the whole night, see, talking on this thing. Well, you know, it never hit me about the reality of this thing. I, I, I was just enjoying this, you know, talking about this stuff. And that, uh, that the, the game is now over. Curious, we won 21 to 6. And, uh, and after the game, he's saying, well, thank you very much for being our guest tonight. It's been a pleasure to have you. And now let's take a look at the statistics for tonight's game. And he waves bye-bye, you know, so on. So I go hobbling down. I get down into the... I get down into the into the dressing room, and sitting in the dressing room was was Mr. Wilson, who was our assistant coach. And he's looking like he's about to, you know, he's got this this, this like like his head is made out of black clouds, and he's mean looking. And I, always a very he, he says, "Oh, smart ass, all right, Shepard." I says, "What?" He says, "What was all this? He's, I, we're sitting here in the equipment." the equipment room listening to you on that uh, on the right what, what do you mean by what do you mean by saying that, 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 that the left side of our, our our offensive line is the weak side what 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 is this stuff what are you coming on here talking like that on the air for 
you realize that tomorrow, next week, already, probably Washington, is already setting up a whole de- or offense based on what you were saying the other day. What is this? It never hit me that people were listening, listening. And that night, when I went home, my brother, my mother, everybody in the neighborhood said, we heard you on the radio. Suddenly hit me. The guy who's doing the game is bigger than the guy who's playing the game. Hardly anybody said, hey, wow, boy, was Papist really, man, there was some real running going on. No, they said, hey, boy, do you, I heard you on the radio. I go in the drugstore. Hey, man, I heard you on the radio. I've been playing for three years and nobody ever said anything. Let's face it, out at Yankee Stadium, Phil Rizzuto gets a bigger hand than Roy White. Vince Scully goes on. Dodgers come and go. <laughs> Do you agree? <laughs> Red Barber is a bigger star than Carl Farillo ever was. Are you going to argue that? <laughs> Mel Allen. Oh, yeah, I remember Mel Allen, of course. Sure. Yes, Walter Cronkite is far bigger than the president to most people. Sure, you know, presidents come and go. But Walter Cronkite goes on. Hardly anybody today can remember the name of astronauts. You can remember a few of the very early astronauts. Maybe John Glenn. That's about it. But boy, oh boy, a lot of people believe seriously that the space program was created, put into motion, designed, and set off by Walter Cronkite. If not Walter Cronkite, at least John, John Chancellor. And I discovered a basic fact of life. Nobody had ever said, hey, Shepard, boy, what a block. That was a fantastic block. Man, that, you, 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 that block, you, you guys sprang him, you know? You and Berlioz. No. Nobody ever gives anybody any credit for a block. Nobody ever gives anybody a credit, you know, for, for running interference. But if you're up there blabbing about it, you'll be given credit for everything. Everything. If it's a win, my God. <laughs> I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was Kurt Gowdy. He really, he pulled it off this. Howard Cosell, you know, are you trying to tell me that Howard Cosell isn't a bigger star than Tom Seaver? You trying to tell me that? Are you trying to tell me that Howard Cosell isn't a bigger star than uh, than uh, than George Blanda? Than Joe Namath? No. Uh, you know, let's face it. Today, it's the wrapping that people buy, not the cereal. Yes. The guy that talks about it is bigger than the guy that does it. Clive Barnes is bigger than any star on Broadway today. You better know it, friend. You better, and he knows it too. And so do the stars.